Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I've gone to it, mainly by the way of mistakes and surprises. Often I receive better than I deserve. I am an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time, looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I've been led. Make of that what you will. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had the sense that somehow, some way, you're being led by an unseen hand? The Bible confirms that this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, and that will be part of what we are looking at this morning. Look at verse 12 with me. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This section, which is part of the Upper Room Discourse, deals primarily with the emotions of the disciples. They were sorrowing and they were confused about some of Jesus' teaching, and they were afraid. I don't know about you, but it is an encouragement to me to know that the disciples were real people with real problems. Yet, the Lord was still able to use them. We can sometimes get the false impression that the disciples were different from us. They were like especially endowed with knowledge and spiritual courage, but such is not the case. They were humans just like us. From the work of the Spirit in the world now, Jesus turns to his work in the believers. First, he speaks of having many things to say to his disciples. At first glance, it seems surprising that after three years of intensive instruction, Jesus will still have many more things to say to the disciples. Let me move this. Excuse me. I don't know. It's making noises. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Sorry about that. And if he did, why not take this opportunity to tell them what they needed to know? The reason, as the Lord will go on to explain, was that they could not bear these truths at that time. That was partly because they were overcome with sorrow that he was leaving them. A more important reason, however, was the disciples' inability to understand. And it was this, the significance of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension before those events had even taken place. Like most of their fellow Jews, the disciples viewed the Messiah as mainly a political and military deliverer. They expected him to drive out the hated Romans and to restore Israel's national sovereignty and bring in the Messianic kingdom with the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And so they simply cannot grasp the concept of a dying Messiah who came not to vanquish the Romans, but to conquer sin and death. But he does not explain everything to them at this time because they cannot bear it. Now that word bear is an unusual word there. It may signify that their experience so far sets a limit to their ability to perceive. In other words, there are panoramas and perspectives of truth before them that they yet cannot see but they will know when the Spirit comes. It also refers to their inability until the Spirit should come to live out the implication of that revelation. 
So when did Jesus tell them these other things? I mean, he was going to be crucified the following day. It was only after his resurrection when they finally could accept and comprehend the rest of his message. Let me ask you, when you first became a Christian, aren't you glad the Lord didn't tell you everything that was going to happen to you ahead of time? Aren't you glad you didn't know about all the trials and tribulations that being Jesus' little sunbeam was going to bring your way? We couldn't have handled it. Or as Chuck Smith once said, that when he and his wife went into ministry young and fresh out of college, that he was glad they did that before they had any sense. Verse 13, please. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. This is why I said that he takes from mine and will disclose it to you. In addition to activating Christ's promises in the disciples, convicting the world of sin, and comforting Jesus' followers, the Spirit would also guide the disciples into all truth. Now, truth is in short supply these days. And even what is considered truth is really just heresy in a pretty dress. In Oprah Winfrey's Lifetime Achievement Award speech at the 2018 Golden Globe, she said, What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we have. Your truth. Those two words are so entrenched in our vocabulary that we hardly recognize them for the incoherent nightmare that they really are. Among other things, the philosophy of your truth destroys families. When a dad suddenly decides his truth is calling him to a new lover, a new family, or maybe even a new gender. The philosophy of your truth allows people to stay addicted to a host of things, even though everyone but themselves can see it's destroying every aspect of their lives. The philosophy of your truth celebrates all manner of perversion under the guise of tolerance. The philosophy of your truth makes it normative for a 40-year-old male to linger in girls' bathrooms. It's a philosophy that can destroy societies because without exception, one person's truth will go to battle with another person's truth, and devoid of reason, only power will decide the victor. And your truth also puts an incredible self-justifying burden on the individual. What I mean is, if we are all self-made projects whose destinies are wholly ours to discover and implement, life just becomes a rat race of independence. Live your truth independence is as exhausting as it is incoherent. And depression is a predictable result and the unavoidable counterpart of the human being who is his or her own sovereign. This is why the only way to successfully navigate life 
is to align our lives with the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that is done by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us through that narrow way that leads unto life. Now, the Spirit is not on one hand just a teacher. He does, just doesn't come with information. On the other hand, he's not just a sympathizer. He doesn't come to say, oh, you poor baby. No, he's not doing either of those two things predominantly. Rather, the job of the counselor is not so much to inform us, but to work the truth in us so that we understand it and so that it affects how we live. The purpose of the counselor is not just to inform, but it is to transform. But what we see here when Jesus says, I will leave and the Spirit will come and take all the things I've been teaching and make them known. The disciples had the truth, but they didn't yet get the truth. They knew about the truth, but they didn't know the truth. And one of the distinctions between the world and his own is the manner in which the Holy Spirit ministers. His ministry to the world is to convict them in order to bring about repentance. His ministry to believers, on the other hand, is to bring about obedience through transformation. This passage also teaches us that God does not give us all the truth in the world, but only the truth about his son. When Jesus says, I've given you all the truth, what could he mean? He couldn't mean all the truth in the world. Now, why would I say that? Well, for instance, there is nothing in the Bible about microbes. There's nothing in the Bible about nuclear fission. There's nothing in the Bible about trigonometry which when I took it always reminded me of algebra on a crack binge. <laughs> so what does he mean when he says all the truth? He means all the truth you need to navigate a godly life and one day be glorified at the end of it. Now there are a lot of people who have learned about nuclear fusion, but sometimes the most brilliant people in the history of the world the people who have made breakthroughs in so many fields, in many cases, are the most tormented of people. And the reason is, knowledge for knowledge's sake and truth for truth's sake is just not enough. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you the apostles all the truth you need because it's all the truth about me. You see, God does, doesn't give us truth in general. Look carefully, and you'll see here what he says about the truth. In verse 13, but when he comes, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all what? Now, it says truth in most translations, but in the Greek, the construction is there's actually an article there. Literally, what Jesus says is, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And when he says all the truth, he's really talking about a set, definite body of teaching. He's talking about a teaching that has boundaries to it. Now, historically, the church understands what he is saying. It's a remarkable thing, really. He is saying to the apostles, friends, there are some things I can't teach you now. But when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into a body of truth, a set of doctrines. And then you, have not, you will not just have part of the truth, but you will have all of it. The truth he will be giving them one day is that Bible that you're holding in your lap this morning. And as the days go by, the Spirit will lead them deeper and deeper 
and to the knowledge of the truth. Now, in passing, we should notice the attempt today of some scholars to go back to the original Jesus and bypass the teaching of the apostles, but that is shown right here by Jesus himself to be misguided. Did you know that there's even a movement called Red Letter Christians? Now, these people emphasize only the words of Christ. They believe Christians should be paying attention only to Jesus' words and examples for such things as promoting biblical values such as peace, building strong families, the elimination of poverty, and other social justice issues. Basically, their emphasis is tolerance, even if that tolerance goes against a mountain of biblical doctrine. But what this means is, if you have a Bible that has a red-letter edition with Jesus' words in red, now there's certainly wrong, nothing wrong with red-letter editions. I own a few of them myself. So what do I mean? What Jesus is saying right here is when you read the Gospel of John and it says, Jesus said, and then you see his words in red, and when John starts to speak, the words go back to black. Jesus Christ is saying here, my teaching is the word of God. And when the spirit moves you to write scripture, your teaching will be the word of God as well. The same source lies behind both. The spirit teaching is not from himself, but he teaches only what he hears. Now, it's not said whether he hears them from the father or the son, but the point is probably unimportant. The emphasis in these verses is on the Spirit rather than the other two people of the Trinity. Now, this expression will indicate his harmony with them. He is not originating something radically new, but leading people in accordance with the teaching already given from the Father and the Son. Now, if you look at the church and how they understood the teaching of the apostles, and if you look at the apostles and see how they understood their own teaching, you realize that they recognize what Jesus is saying here. Not only my teachings, but your teachings will have objective authority as the divine word of God. If you look and see how Paul viewed himself. Now, Paul wasn't standing there with the disciples at this time. Jesus had to make a special trip to earth to say the very same thing to Paul and give him the same commission. And so Paul looked at himself that way. There are places where Paul says, by God's revelation, I have these mysteries that no one else knows. He says in 1 Corinthians, we teach the words that are not words from humankind, but rather they are words that the Spirit speaks. He also says in 1 Corinthians, if anyone is spiritual, you will know that the words I teach you are the commandments of God. Jesus says the Spirit will glorify me and then show it to you. The Spirit will give you what you need, and that is it will show you all you need to know about who I am, what I've done, and who you can be in me. So really, the purpose of Scripture is to get you to fall in love. What is the purpose of Scripture? It's not just information to get across. He says he will give you the truth, all the truth. Why? That you might see his glory. Do you know what it means to fall in love? It means to see somebody's glory. When you fell in love with your spouse, you saw their glory. Now, it does, doesn't mean their physical appearance. The word glory in the Bible, as we know, means weight. It means importance. It means significance. So when you fall in love with somebody, that person becomes the most important 
person in your life. Here's what I'm asking you this morning. You say, I've accepted the Bible and I've received the revelation of the Bible. But did you ever fall in love with him? Has he ever became the most important thing in your life? So, for example, his opinion of you becomes more important than anybody else's opinion. That's what it means to have him glorified. Why can't we take criticism? Why is it some of you have lost sleep this week because you feel like you've been snubbed? It is because someone else's opinion is more glorious than his. And so I ask us, is his love the most glorious and important thing in our lives? Is his opinion more glorious and more important than anyone else's opinion? Is pleasing him more important and glorious than pleasing anyone else? Because until you are in love with him that way, until that happens, you have actually missed the entire point of this chapter. John Donne, the great poet, puts it this way. He says, Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chase, except you ravish me. John Donne is saying there, Until I am ravished by your glory, I'm going to let other things ravish me. What he is saying is what we, need, what we need more than anything else today is to see the glory of God in our lives. The reason you're addicted, the reason you're depressed, the reason you're so worried is because there are other things ravishing you that are more important than Jesus. If we could just be ravished by his glory, all these other things would no longer run our lives. There would be a holy moderation about our lives. Now, every other religion gives you an abstract God. It gives you a concept of God, but not a God who is real. What do I mean, not a God who is real? Here's Moses, and he comes to God and he says, show me your glory. What is he doing? He's saying, Lord God, I'm just a human being. You've told me about your glory. I understand the concept of your glory. But, Lord, you won't let us make images like every other religion. They bow down to idols and statues because they need something they can see and something that they can feel. But I'm just a human being. Show me your glory. Don't just tell me about it. Show me. God says no. But what he really meant was not yet. In Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus Christ is the icon, the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, 3, we're told, Jesus Christ is the very radiance of his glory and the express image of God's being. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want God to be real to you this morning, the Holy Spirit does not just take abstract ideas and make them real to you. The way you experience spiritual reality is you have to read about who Jesus is. Look at Jesus saying to the storm, peace be still. 
That is the way the Holy Spirit will make you aware of his power. That's the way to deal with your worry. Look at the woman caught in adultery. That's the way you will see his love. Most of all, look at him on the cross looking down at us and still staying there. Look at him on that cross looking down at us and saying, Father, forgive them. At the very end of the list, Paul says in Galatians 5, these are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. He then says, against these things, there is no law. Now, that's a little bit of a puzzling statement, but here's what it means. Paul says the law can only be negative. If you believe like the legalists do, that you have to just obey the rules, all that will do is keep you from doing certain things. But if you actually want to become a person of love, a person of peace, a person of joy, you have to see that embodied. John had earlier said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the embodiment of God. And now his Holy Spirit wants to be the embodiment of the church. That is the only way to experience what Paul told Timothy when he said, this is the life that is truly life. All other things or people that we ever try to put in his place is just a dismal substitution that we'll never be able to satisfy. And 99% of the time, people think either I need new circumstances or I need new information. But Jesus says, no, your whole problem is the information you already have just isn't real to you. Think about that. If the love of God that we say we believe was truly real to us, there would be very little discouragement. If heaven was truly real to us, we would be living lives of abandonment and self-sacrifice and generosity. If the wisdom of God was truly real to us, we wouldn't live in fear. Don't we see? All of our problems come because the things that we know intellectually aren't as real practically as they should be. And I place myself among your number this morning. Now, why is that important for us to know? See, our big problem in life is that unreal things are real to us, and the real things are unreal to us. For instance, 20 years ago, your mother said, you are worthless, and you can't forget it, even though there's all sorts of evidence that that is not true. The Bible is absolutely filled with statements of love and commitment to you, and yet it's unreal to you, even though there's all the evidence in the world that it is true, just because of what your mother said. What are we controlled by? What is spiritually real to us? That's our whole problem. That is why we need one another to speak biblical truth into each other's lives. Listen, why do you come to church? Why do we urge people to have Christian friends with whom you can share everything and tell them what's going on and let them in on your important decisions? Do you know that what I actually said is a command? Hebrews 3.13 says, 
Exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so if we don't do that on a regular basis, the Bible says we're going to become hard. The teachings that we know intellectually won't be real to us unless we engage in consistent fellowship. Now, I know that we can't be together here throughout the week, and that's why Sundays are so important. Do you know why I hardly ever miss a Sunday? You're thinking because you're the pastor, Einstein. Now, that is true. But before I was a pastor, there was just something, no, strike that, someone who always drew me to church. Now, I didn't come because I was holier than those who weren't as faithful. No, I came because I understood that I needed God's Word taught to me and the fellowship and the encouragement of His saints. I'm not talking about coming to church if you're sick or if you're on vacation. And I know things come up sometimes. All I am saying is I at least want to be as faithful going to church as I am and going to work. And I would be doing you a great disservice this morning if I didn't take the risk of offending you by telling you that. So, he is saying that unless you're constantly letting the Holy Spirit make these things real to you, otherwise, our whole problem is just a lack of true spiritual reality. We need church. We need friends. We need fellowship. Why should you sit down and pray in the morning? Why should you be reading the Bible consistently? Now, here's the point. If you are just spotty at this, if you show up at church ever so often, and if you only pray when you're in trouble, you really aren't understanding what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. And I realize some of the people that needed to hear that aren't here this morning. So uh, welcome to my world. So as we finish up, Back to my opening question. Have you ever and do you now feel a guiding hand upon your life? This is the Holy Spirit guiding us. If you read not only the scripture, but some of the biographies of some of the most famous Christians, they always have sort of a profound sense of being found. They always sense that I have not discovered, but more, I have been discovered. They might start out by saying, this is what I thought. I thought I was searching for God. I thought I was searching for truth. But actually, in many ways, I was trying to get away from him. I was searching for truth, but I resented the idea that there was a truth deposited somewhere that I had to submit to. So I did everything I could to get away from him. And finally, he opened my eyes. He awakened me. He came to me, and he showed me who he was. He taught me. He knew I couldn't bear the truth, but he brought his Holy Spirit into my life, and he opened my eyes. That is the way that men and women throughout the ages have described essentially what it means to become a Christian. I once was lost, but now I'm found. In one of the most famous of conversion stories, and surprised by joy, C.S. Lewis says, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and knelt 
and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Then he says this famous phrase, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. To that I say amen. Let us pray. O Lord, the songwriter, I pray, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And as Jonathan prayed, Lord, we live in Sodom. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. And we desperately need your Holy Spirit to guide us and to illuminate our path. Do that for us, O Lord. We ask it in the name of your Son, who made the way for us. Amen.